0: Love Talk Radio.
1: everybody welcome to the show today I'm a little tired I don't know why I'm tired but I am tired maybe I'll inject some more caffeine directly into my veins during the first break um, a lot of stuff to get to today uh, I'm still going to talk a little bit about the Wall Street bet situation although it has cooled off and um, there's only so much rigging regular people could take so now the actions look just like a standard pump and dump not good not good so we'll talk about that. Um, We have the craziest Bernie Sanders smear I think I've ever seen. We have some good news on the COVID relief bill. I know that's few and far between, but we have some now. And um, foreign policy. The Biden administration is fucking up beyond belief on foreign policy issues, so we'll talk about that. Joe Manchin weighs in on the minimum wage. Um, Pucker your buttholes for that one. So a lot of stuff to get to including later on, YouTube censorship is striking again, and it's striking in uh, the worst possible places. So without further ado, let's get started. MSNBC offered us some of the dumbest possible criticism um, of the Wall Street Bets Reddit. Now, this is fascinating because, as a general rule, CNBC is the worst on matters like this, but MSNBC, um, not to be outdone, decided to get in on some of the fun of preposterous commentary.
2: You're learning here. Maybe it's fun. Fine. Maybe it's a movement. But be prepared to lose 80 to 90% of it. And if it's still worth it, then have at it. But the biggest loss of capital here will be the human capital of young men who are sitting and staring at their phone and watching the price of Bitcoin or the price of AMC. And ask yourself, would you be better off taking that one, two, or three hours a day and working out, trying to form relationships with mentors, with, with, with romantic relationships, with people at work, getting great at something so you can be the person on the other side of the trade? The greatest loss in, in capital here is, is from young men who are more prone to gambling addiction, who don't understand uh, the markets. I think we are setting ourselves up similar to how there's a ton of young women out there who became very depressed by sitting in their rooms looking at Instagram. Self-cutting and self-harm skyrocket. I think you are going to see uh, uh, an explosion in young male depression, and I think a lot of it is going to be reverse-engineered to apps that convince you you're part of a movement or physically addict you to your phone. Ask yourself, would your time staring at Robinhood be better spent somewhere else that is the real capital destruction that is taking place
1: here who the fuck are you sigmund freud i mean this is amazing because the last ditch effort to attempt to get the reddit people off of the ass of the wall street people is like psychoanalysis and character assassination. I know you guys are, like, bankrupting everybody on Wall Street sitting in in your mom's basement, but, like, maybe you need to reevaluate your life and think about why you're in your mom's basement and realize that you should probably make some changes. Like, who are you? Are you Sigmund Freud? You think you're Jordan Peterson? Like, what are you saying? What are you doing? It's just so pathetic. It's so transparent, too. As if, like, this random schmuck on MSNBC gives a fuck about any of the people who are commenting on Reddit, and who are uh, driving up the price of GameStop and AMC? Now, the bad news, of course, is it all cooled off. And um, as I'm talking to you now, it looks just like that Volkswagen stock did from what was it? It's 2008, 2009, 2018. I forget. Um, this happened with the Volkswagen ones, where like the stock shot up massively, over 100%, and then it came right back down to earth. And um, it looks like that's what's happening now with some of these stocks. It looks like standard pump and dump stuff, but um, God damn it, it was fun while it lasted, wasn't it? It was fun while it lasted to stick it to these hedge funds. And in a world that made sense, and in a world where there was an actual free market, um, Melvin Capital and many of the other hedge funds would be belly up and would be done. They'd be bankrupt. Now, I don't know what's going on with them now because, you know, it's like, um, usually these people are connected and they can get bailouts. And um, they also have connections to other moneyed interests in high places, so they have access to capital in other ways. But the fact of the matter is, they lost $13 billion in the blink of an eye. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen moving forward in terms of Melvin Capital and some of the other hedge funds. Um, the, the tides now are shifted more in the direction of the hedge funds that were originally getting screwed. But it's amazing that this is the, the extent that they went to in order to try to uh, make it seem like they're the good guys and what's happening online, obviously those are the bad guys. So he said the biggest loss was the, the friends we made along the way.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, you didn't actually say that. I said that. Um, he said young men need to work out, have relationships with women, have mentors, get great at something. These young men are more prone to gambling addiction. I love that because think about it. Look at what he classifies as gambling. Gambling is when you're uh, you know, a regular person who's a day trader on one of these apps. You're taking risks when you do it. Do you consider gambling all of Wall Street? Because that is what all of Wall Street is. And as Bernie Sanders accurately has said about a million times, fraud is the business model in a lot of instances with these people. But like for some reason, that's, that's not considered gambling, but it is considered gambling when you're a regular person and you do it. I mean, the double standards are ridiculous, because the fact of the matter is, the suits and ties, the official look, the favored status in society, that makes it so they overlook all the flaws of the people on Wall Street and of the hedge funds, and like, that's one of the main things that people are objecting to, is like, the system isn't functioning correctly and accurately simply because you say so, and simply because you assert that's the case. Not like these people are professionals and these people are lost young men because this is how you're defining it, and and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get away with these like sleight of hand tricks, and it's it's gross, it's disgusting. So again, the bad news is things have seemingly cooled off as of the recording of this segment. Um, but man, it was so nice to see them squirm for a while. It was so nice to see the people who've rigged the system, the people who get the endless bailouts, the people who privatize the profits and socialize the losses, it was great to see them caught with their nuts popping out of their zipper. And, uh, you know, I would say hold the line, but it appears like the fun has already come to an end. So I would love to continue to find a way. Originally there was Occupy Wall Street. Now there's Infiltrate Wall Street. I hope there's more infiltration to come because these people get what they deserve. And um, we're sick of the system being rigged in favor of the wealthy, in favor of the 1%, in favor of Wall Street and hedge funds. And um, basically, any way to stick it to them, I'm in favor of, within reason. In this case, it happened to be done by a bunch of people on Reddit who are like Elon Musk fanboys. Okay. Um, But a more organized effort and um, a new kind of effort might be on the horizon, and I hope it is. Okay, next, I am going to, I got to jump to the Newsmax clip because it's the best clip ever, this went viral last night in part because you're truly pumped it out there, but it's not just me, it was going to go viral no matter what. Newsmax made the mistake of inviting on the My Pillow lunatic to talk about his Twitter ban, and the segment went off the rails because he kept coming back to a topic that you're not allowed to touch on Newsmax anymore. So let's watch, and I'll explain how and why this all occurred.
2: So what happened? What, what happened with your Twitter account and the uh, company
3: page? Well, first mine was taken down because we have all the election fraud with these dominion machines. We have 100% proof, and then I... When they took it down uh, a, a 3 and I, then uh, m- I put it back up, my personal, I put it... it was a Mike, uh, thank you very much. Mike, Mike, I, uh, you're talking uh, about machines uh, that, that we at Newsmax have not been able to verify any of uh, those kinds of allegations. We just want to let people know that there's nothing substantive that we've seen. And let me read you something there. While there were some clear evidence of some cases of vote fraud and election irregularities, the election results in every state were certified and Newsmax accepts the results as legal and final, the courts have also supported that view. So we wanted to talk to you about canceling culture, if you will. We don't want to relitigate the, the, the uh, allegations wait, 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 wait. that you're making, Mike, because we, we, we understand where you are. So let me ask you this. Do you think that this should be temporary because it appears to be permanent? Could you make an argument that it is temporary? What? <laughs> what? Would you make an argument that this could be a temporary banning rather than permanent? No, I want it to be a permanent because, you know what? They did this because I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election problems with these machines. So I'm sorry if you okay. think it's not uh, Mike, it's I, I, Can the, I the, 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 ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, okay. I, I don't want to have to keep going over this. Actually, we have not been able wait, to verify wait, any of those allegations. Mike, hold on a second. Everybody hold on a second.
2: Mike, Mike, hold on one second. Uh, let's talk
3: a little bit about just what is happening overall in terms of censorship. Cancel out my company and myself. In this country, is cancel culture.
1: One of the hosts stormed off. He stormed off. That was glorious. Uh, so I don't know. I've never seen that guy before. Not that I watch Newsmax all the time. I don't. But I've never seen that guy before which leads me to believe he's almost, he might be like a higher-up, he might be part of management on top of being some sort of on-air personality. And he stormed off there. Now, here's why that got so contentious. It's not that the Newsmax hosts you know, um, don't either agree with the fraudulent election conspiracy theories or are sympathetic to the fraudulent election conspiracy theories. Many of them are. But you have the company, Dominion, has been waging lawsuits left and right on all the people who are making these bogus, insane claims. By the way, the main claim is that Venezuela and a bunch of communists rigged the election in favor of Joe Biden. Funniest thing I've ever heard. Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So Dominion realizes, oh my God, we have cases for libel and slander and defamation all over the place. And even though it's notoriously difficult to prove libel and slander and defamation, they might actually win some of these cases because the claims are so bogus and so over the top and there's zero evidence and these people do have malicious intent when they bring those things up. They've been waging these lawsuits everywhere. Newsmax is one of the outlets that got one of these lawsuits. And so what they did is to avoid this going further, they've done this a number of times now and we actually covered the original segment on air. They read a statement directly from Dominion. And the statement is basically like, hey listen, there's no evidence for any of this stuff. um, So we don't stand by this. We can't say any of this stuff with certainty. It's untrue. 60 court cases or more have proven that uh, the election was indeed not rigged, yada, yada, yada. And so they've now read that on air a number of times. They know that if somebody brings up on their airwaves that conspiracy, the court case is going to go further. Whatever sort of settlement or deal they reached where they have to correct the record and there is no financial penalty, they know there might be a financial penalty if they continue to allow these conspiracy theories on their airwaves. So... That's why when the MyPillow guy brings it up, hey, that's why I got, I got banned from Twitter because I was going to prove that the election was fraudulent, they, uh, they immediately are like, no, but no, don't, don't say that, don't say that, we invited you on to talk about Twitter, now talk about Twitter, talk about cancel, the guy says, canceling culture, whatever the fuck it is, he said, um, you can tell he's like, he's not extremely online like a lot of the other people who usually we cover on this show, but, uh, He's like, talk about the canceling culture. Talk about how it's bad when they kick people off of, of Twitter and whatnot. They wanted to limit the segment to just that, but the MyPillow guy is a total loose cannon, so we couldn't help but bring out, up the fraudulent election stuff. And he says, well, that's why I was kicked off, because I was going to blow the lid off the election. Sure you were, son. Sure you were. By the way, this is a guy who has claimed that God chose Donald Trump to be president for eight years. Well, I like them apples. Seems like God, it was a swing and a miss. (laughs) Because he got four. So, I mean, the guy is certifiably out of his mind, this guy. So, they brought him on, and I would say to them, what the fuck did you expect to happen? What did you expect to happen? You thought you were going to keep this guy on message? You thought you were going to keep him, you know, on a narrow topic that you laid out beforehand? Don't be ridiculous. So, anyway... They uh, got what's coming to him. I love how the guy was panicking frantically to try to say, no, no, we don't stand by any of this. We can't verify any of this. And the other thing I love is this happens sometimes with these appearances. Sometimes one mic is favored over another mic where it's way louder. Um, and usually it's not done on purpose. It's just the nature of, like, the various audio equipment that they're using. So every time the host talked, it was clearly louder than the MyPillow guy. And the MyPillow guy went on this long rant, and he didn't hear a goddamn word of it because the other guy was trying desperately to sound professional and keep it on script. And clearly he had enough because at some point he was just like, he just walked off set. So anything to avoid that lawsuit, Newsmax probably knows, One American News Network probably knows, if they exhaust that path any further, they could get sued out of existence. So what you're seeing there is a network fighting to basically stay on air and continue to exist. They don't want the My Pillow idiot to drag them down because he can't let go of his insane conspiracies. So in a weird way, I guess I come full circle and I say, go My Pillow guy, because Newsmax and One America News Network are definitely poisonous and toxic to the national discourse. That doesn't mean they should be banned. That doesn't mean the principle of free speech doesn't apply. Of course it does. But uh, if it just so happens that one of them happens to go out of business, let's just say I'm not going to shed a tear. Okay. One of the worst smear jobs on Bernie Sanders ever. And that says a lot because he's gotten a lot of smear jobs. A lot of smear jobs, a lot of smear jobs against Bernie Sanders, bitch. Here we go. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote one of the craziest Bernie Sanders smears I've ever seen. It's like they gave up trying to be convincing. So here's the tweet about it. This is actually a line from the article as well. Senator Sanders is no white supremacist insurrectionist, but, God, I love that, but he manifests privilege, white privilege, male privilege, and class privilege in ways that my students could see and feel. So let me play the same game that they're playing. This is an incredibly anti-Semitic article. This article is so anti-Semitic that I think your hero might be Goebbels. Why are you viciously smearing the Jew? It must be because of your latent hatred of Jewish people. Ah, now that's unfair, right? That's unfair, correct? Of course it's unfair. So why on earth would you play these same games in another direction? Because they can't help themselves. They hate Bernie Sanders. So, um... The writer in this article, I recommend everybody reads it, even though you're going to want to rip your eyeballs out of your face as you're doing it. Um, The writer compares Bernie at the inauguration to the insurrectionists on January 6th, who were attempting, albeit in a pathetic way, to overthrow the government. There's a comparison there. Now, of course, it's the classic tongue-in-cheek, like, I'm not going to make this comparison, as you then go on to make the comparison, um, but it's there. It's, it's clear that it's there. So for those of you who are wondering what the argument is, because clearly it's the biggest stretch of a point you've ever heard in your life, what they say is, okay, Bernie Sanders was getting all of the attention on social media during the inauguration, which is true. He was getting a lot of the attention on social media. And I can't believe that was happening because here you had all these, these women – who were in historic circumstances, Kamala Harris, first woman of color as vice president, you know, um, Michelle Obama was there, Hillary Clinton was there. She says that in her class they talked about the significance of the color that the women were wearing and the significance of all the various outfits, including the performers like Jennifer Lopez and this and that. So the argument is here you have all of these strong women and many of them women of color with deeply significant and symbolic colors and outfits and um, taking the moment in seriously and treating it with the weight that it deserves. And there you have Bernie Sanders who shows up all schlubby with his jacket that he's probably had since 1996, you know, his mittens that were made by a teacher. And somehow Bernie Sanders gets all the attention instead of us focusing on what these amazing women of color were wearing. That has to be sexism. That has to be male privilege, white privilege, as to why Bernie Sanders was getting all the attention. Now, I mean, obviously that's a silly, silly, silly point to make. And, and the reason it is, is because it's almost like you're going out of your way to weave a narrative to match the ideology you already have. The ideology you already have is, you know, men bad, women great, white people bad, um, people of color great. So now let me just like fit everything into, the, into those boxes by any means necessary. And so what you're doing is overlooking the actual reason why Bernie Sanders was prominently trending all throughout um, the inauguration day. And the answer to that is very simple because Corn and I actually spoke about this on Kyle and Corn a few weeks back. Bernie Sanders came across like a regular person, like some soccer dad or some soccer grandpa who is, is relatable. It's relatable that it was freaking freezing out there, and he's got on the really heavy, thick jacket to stay warm, and he was trying desperately to stay warm. The other thing is the mittens made by a teacher, which he's had forever. By the way, he ended up raising a tremendous amount of money for charity as a result of the fact that he went viral, if I remember correctly. Um, So the reason why people were relating to him is because it was relatable, he felt like a, a fish out of water. He doesn't like, you know, the, the fancy-schmancy situation. He clearly would rather be sitting in front of a fire with hot cocoa watching, you know, reruns of the Brady Bunch or whatever. And that's relatable. People look at that and they're like, every time I go to one of these events, whatever it may be, a wedding, something, I just feel like I, I feel like a fish out of water. I feel like, why am I there? So people saw that and they related to it. That's the, the everyday person. And it wasn't just men and white men relating to it. it. was Everybody was relating to it. So that's why it blew up. And when it get, comes to all the others who were dressed in a way that was like wearing their Sunday best and really going over the top with it, I think the thing that people find gross about that is to a lot of people in D.C. and in these elitist circles – That's what politics is to them. Politics is, essentially, as um, the old saying goes, it's it's Hollywood for ugly people. Politics is Hollywood for ugly people. So to them, it's like what they care about is the narcissism and the self-aggrandizement and the fawning adoration of the media and, like, the verification that you're in, that upper echelon of society. And so... That's what politics to them. To Bernie Sanders, politics is I want to raise wages, and I want to give people health care, and I want to end the wars, and I want to free all the nonviolent drug offenders. That's politics to Bernie Sanders. So, again, it's relatable for that reason. Nobody can relate to the super beautiful or you know super dressed up person who's loving every minute of this top 1% gala. Nobody can relate to that person. We all relate to the guy who's wearing the big, thick jacket and just trying to stay warm and looks like he has no friends there. So anyway, that, that's the reality of it. And instead, what do they do? They flip it on its head. So now the people who care about the narcissism and the self-aggrandizement are virtuous, and the person who's a regular person, oh, the fact that he got all the attention just proves white privilege and male privilege. I mean, It's ridiculous square peg, round hole stuff all day. It's this person taking their ideology and superimposing it onto uh, what was happening that day. And and it really is elitist snobbery. You know what I mean? That's what it is. It's elitist snobbery. It's the exact kind of politics where that turns people off to the left. This person considers themselves on the left, which I'm sure they do. It turns people off because it's just these little sectarian identity cults. And like it's it's very divisive. So anyway, it takes a lot to be the biggest smear article I've ever seen against Bernie. And I think this made the cut. There's been endless smears against Bernie, endless. But this is like, this is definitely top 1% of smears. Okay, next. So, believe it or not, we have some good news in regards to the COVID relief bill. Schumer and Pelosi have filed a joint budget resolution kicking off reconciliation process to pass $1.9 trillion COVID aid with simple majority vote. Quote, Congress must pursue a bold and robust course of action. It makes no sense to pinch pennies, Schumer says. Now, right before I came on air, we got another awesome quote that was from Biden, of all people, where Biden said, I think it was two the 10 Republicans who were in that meeting. Or no, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was with Manchin or somebody afterwards. Anyway, he said something to the effect of, we're not going to make the same mistake of 2009, where Obama tried so hard to reach out to all these Republicans, and they wasted a lot of time, and they ended up getting no Republican votes. So, listen, in some ways, credit words do. This is Biden learning the lesson of the Obama era and saying, like, listen, okay, I tried, I tried to go through regular order. If you guys are making clear, you want a package that I think is way too small, well then step aside, we have the 51 votes through reconciliation, so we're going to start the process of reconciliation. Now, what you need to understand is this. Reconciliation takes a while. I don't know how many hours, it's some preposterous number of hours that they have to debate, 30 or 50 hours, something like that. Um, It's a mess. The whole process is a mess, but when the process is done, you can get something passed with 51 votes. They've started the process of reconciliation. That's definitely a good thing. What I will say is this, though, and maybe I'm I'm nitpicking, although I really don't think I am, especially because they were promising the $2,000 checks um, would go out immediately or within the first week, and now we're past the first week. But I I would have been lenient enough where if at some point within the first week they started the process of reconciliation, okay, I'll give you full credit. But they didn't. They didn't do it within the first week. They waited more than the first week. Really, they should have started the process of reconciliation on this within the first two days. You know what I mean? Because you're going to know very quickly whether or not you can get to the 60 Republican votes. Because there's only 51 Democratic votes, so you need to get a lot of Republicans. If you know after the first day or two that the count is two or three Republicans that you're going to be able to get, if that, then why are we messing around? Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I don't understand what we're doing here. Don't get it. Just go right to reconciliation. So this is the good news. That $1.9 trillion package to reconciliation. The bad news is I have now seen a lot of chatter that there are negotiations going on behind the scenes um, where they're they're thinking about adjusting n- not the the size of the checks. It should be two thousand, it's not. They backed off to fourteen hundred and said a total of two thousand because you already got six hundred. So I think they're staying with that number, but what they're flirting with now is means testing it even more, which means instead of this money going to everybody that makes $75,000 a year or less, they're thinking of lowering that to like 50000 or something, or having a phase-in where you know, you get a certain number if you make a certain amount, and you get a little more if you make less. So in other words, they're thinking of like hyper-means testing it even more than they already are. So if they do that, then get ready to criticize strongly because they deserve the criticism. I mean, they already deserve the criticism for backing off the $2,000 checks and now making it $1,400. They already deserve criticism for that. But this would be another level of criticism where you're really going out of your way to make the bill objectively worse and to leave a lot of people behind who need the help and need it. Now, people are already being left behind. It's not like It's only the people who made $75,000 a year or less that are feeling the hurt. There's a lot of people who made more than that who are feeling the hurt. So it's already too means tested. They might want to means test it even more. Um, But I will say we have to cross that bridge when we come to it, when we get the final numbers of what will be in the package. But as of right now, starting the process of reconciliation is a good sign. That is a good sign. There are other things that we'll talk about in other segments that are bad signs, but this is a good sign, and at least it's more progressive than the Obama years right now. So we all thought Joe Biden, based on his track record, he would do nothing but nonstop, 24-7, always reaching out to Republicans. And I started to believe there they weren't even going to try to get it through reconciliation, but now they started the process for reconciliation, so that's definitely a good thing. Now we have to see how aggressive it is how much of the integrity of the bill is maintained. But um, at least for now, you can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because there wasn't any way it was getting through regular order. So now we know at least there's a chance that this is getting through. Okay. So the credit on domestic policy is given right back On, on foreign policy. ABC News is reporting on Biden's, honestly, biggest flop to date. It's right on par with the $2,000 checks and backing off of that. Might even surpass it. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. That's, you know, it's a subjective thing where you determine which is worse. Um, But take a look. Biden to challenge Trump's foreign policy of America first amid a surge in high-profile assassinations and violent acts. The Biden administration is indicating it will keep U.S. troops in Afghanistan past a May withdrawal deadline laid out in the U.S. deal with the Taliban. President Joe Biden has talked about keeping U.S. forces for counterterrorism or to defend the U.S.-backed Afghan government against a rise in Taliban attacks. But it's unclear what conditions, to what end, and for how long after America's nearly 20 years of war. U.S. troops are at their lowest level in Afghanistan now, which the Pentagon said in a new report Monday has imposed limitations on completing its mission. They do not go on to explain what that mission is. And that's probably the most crucial point. Oh, this is preventing us from from completing our mission. What's your mission? I don't know what our mission is. So they're saying... No, we're not going to pull out. No, we're not going to abide by the timeline that's been laid out before us in some sort of negotiated deal. And I'm not going to tell you when we are going to pull out. So give me more time, give me more money, give me more soldiers, and I'm not going to give you a plan or a goal or an exit date. Are you insane? Why would anybody agree to that? Why would any sane, rational human being agree to that? You would only agree to that if your default setting is war is the answer. I don't know what the question is, but war is the answer. We have a right to police the world because I say so. We're the world's policemen. We're the world's sole superpower. We're the imperialist force. So we get to do whatever we want. International law does not apply to us. And beyond that, we're not even going to give you a theoretical reason why we should stay and what we're doing there. Who's insane enough to to sign on to this? I don't have the polls in front of me, but I know that the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan are historically unpopular. I mean, it was the war in Afghanistan a long time ago surpassed the unpopularity of the Vietnam War at the height of its unpopularity. Think about that. Depending on how you ask the question, you can get numbers that are in, like, the teens, 19%, 13%, whatever it is, of, like, that's the number of people who support the war there. It's nothing but a colossal waste of resources, waste of our soldiers' lives, waste of civilian lives there. By the way, the last time, because the media never even talks about this stuff, but the last time um, what we're doing there was in the news in a prominent way was when we bombed the Kunduz hospital and killed massive numbers of civilians. So we need to stay there to protect the civilians, maybe by killing them. Then there was that... Actually, I'm wrong, because then there was that story of the Afghanistan papers, where we learned that the whole war has been a giant mess. We learned that there is no strategy, there is no order, there is no purpose, and that dropped in the media, and it was... It was out almost immediately. Like the major networks barely touched it. And I forget who did it, to be fair. It was either New York Times or Washington Post. It was one of those papers that did really, really great reporting. And it was just like a blip in the radar. And by the next day, we were talking about some dumb Trump tweet. By the way, this is the problem with the media, is they never focus on the things that actually matter. So what are we doing there? I mean, that's the question, right? What are we doing there? And I'm not, I'm not in those rooms. I can't give you concrete, definitive answers. Um, Well, what I do know is everything they've said every step of the way turned out to not be true. When you look at Iraq, when you look at Afghanistan, both of them, in the case of Iraq, we got to get rid of Saddam Hussein because Saddam Hussein helped Osama bin Laden with 9-11. That wasn't true. Then they moved the goalposts to, oh, he has weapons of mass destruction, and the implication was he's going to attack us with them. That wasn't true either. Then the argument was just, ah, he's a bad guy, he's a dictator. If you don't want to do the war, you love dictators. Nonsense. Obviously, you could disagree with the war on principle, saying, hey, he's not a threat to us, so what are we doing? They said, no, you love dictators if you're against the war. In the case of Afghanistan, oh, we've got to go into Afghanistan, because 9-11 happened, and we've got to go to Osama bin Laden. That's where he's hiding. Osama bin Laden's been dead for a really long time. Why are we still there? Well, see, they, the Taliban was protecting al-Qaeda. Okay, now according to our own intelligence agencies, there's less than 100 al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. Why are we there? Well, it, now it was al-Qaeda, but... The Taliban themselves are bad enough, and they're a threat, so we got to stay. Okay, but who, who are they a threat to? Are they a threat to us? Not necessarily. Really, they're a threat to their own people. So that's the standard. You know how many places around the world there are groups that are a threat to their own populations? Should we invade all of them? What's the standard here? What's the standard you're operating from? What's the principle? This is the neocon mindset. This is the imperialist mindset. And then listen, when when you scratch beneath the surface, what do you find? You find that there's all these perverse incentives. Don't take my word for it. Go go read Smedley Butler and and his War is a Racket piece. Like, there's a lot of money to be made in war. That's the military-industrial complex. There are jobs tied to all 50 states for the military-industrial complex, for the defense industry. So our welfare in this country is warfare. We have so many jobs tied to it. Now you can say that's conspiratorial. Fair enough. But it's also true that even Dwight Eisenhower was like, beware of the military industrial complex. Because when war is profitable for a certain segment of the population, they're gonna want to do more war. I mean, that's just the way it works. In the same way that when you have private prisons, now there's an incentive to put more people in prison. Same thing with our our defense industry, the military industrial complex. They make more money. The more war is being done, the more we sell weapons to brutal regimes like Saudi Arabia, for example. That's one thing. The other thing is oil in the case of Iraq, um, trillions of dollars in mineral wealth in the case of Afghanistan, opium. I mean, there needs to be an explanation that makes sense. And everything they've said so far does not make sense. And now you have how many administrations? Every administration, Democrat, Republican, somehow, a lot of them talk a good game and then they always do the same thing. Obama yo-yoed the troop levels, up, down, up, down, up, down, but ultimately he kept us there. Trump yo-yoed the troop levels, up, down, up, down, up, down, ultimately he kept us there. The withdrawal, by the way, still keeps at least 2,000 troops there. Biden's now, ah, we got to get even more, do another surge. And this is at a time when our country's falling apart. You think we don't need those funds, that money here? Are you kidding me? You have to be kidding me. Job losses are four times worse than the Great Recession. 40% of the country is food insecure. Nearly 80% was living paycheck to paycheck before COVID, the pandemic, and the depression. Our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. You think we don't need those funds here? Why would we waste those funds overseas? But here we are. Here we are. So Biden is continuing in the footsteps of George W. Bush, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama. Give war a chance. How long? We've been there 20 years. You want to say they're 40 years? Give me a line. Give me a number. Give me a number. Give me a goal. They're not going to do any of that. And people are just going to sit back and take it because the media is so shitty they don't even talk about it. There's people who probably don't even know we're still in these countries because the media never talks about it. So it's pathetic. It's pathetic. These issues matter. These issues matter. And they're not treated like they do. So um, this is disgusting. And if we had an adversarial media... They would challenge Biden on this. Um, if we had people in positions of power that listen to the American people, they'd pull us out immediately. But they're not going to do any of those things. So here we are. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, on this issue. So Joe Manchin still reminding us that he's Joe Manchin. So the bottom tweet there says, Are you supportive of the fifteen dollar minimum wage? No, I'm not, Manchin said. Quote, I'm supportive of basically having something that's responsible and reasonable. In my state, that would be eleven dollars with inflation, etc. He's against a fifteen dollar minimum wage. He can't help himself. Manchin gonna mansion, isn't he? Now, I want to give you a little bit of hope. Because the fact of the matter is, Manchin initially said, absolutely not, I'm not in favor of a $2,000 check. Then what happened is, Corbin Trent, who by the way, was the executive director of Justice Democrats, so I happen to know him, and I know he's a hard worker and everything, he ran a bunch of ads in West Virginia basically calling out Joe Manchin for saying, no, no $2,000 checks. And Manchin got a tremendous amount of pressure specifically from West Virginia, from voters in West Virginia. And what did he do? He flipped. He's like, did I say, did I say, no, I'm not of the $2,000 checks. What I meant was what happened was the sun was in my eyes and me and Craig was down by the Safeway with Greg and them and what I was see, the I'm kinda I kinda like it, but I'm thinking about it, but I'm probably I'm probably I'm probably for it. I didn't say I was against it. I mean I'm I'm gonna do the thing that the voters want me to do because that's what I'm gonna do. So in other words, Manchin will go like this where the political wind's blowing. That's what Joe Manchin will do. That's what he's gonna do. Another example Jim Justice who is the Republican governor of West Virginia, former Democrat, by the way, now he's a Republican governor of West Virginia. He did a CNN interview. By the way, he's getting a lot of national media attention because West Virginia is actually doing the vaccine rollout better than any other state, okay? So they didn't, it's just a long story, but he didn't sign a contract with Walgreens and CVF because there aren't that many in West Virginia, and the state government took a hands-on approach. They're vaccinating way more people than every other state. So anyway, he comes out and says, yeah, um, we need to do the a, a bigger number for the stimulus checks and, and for a COVID relief bill, because in a time like this, that's what you need to do. You need to spend, and if you spend a little too much, if the deficit goes up, the debt goes up a little bit, who cares? That's a lesser evil than having a depression. So he comes out in favor of a bigger stimulus. So Joe Manchin's like, I, who, me, bro? I, 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 like, I want a big stimulus, too. That's what I want. That's what I always say. Joe Manchin will always be one of these. Which way is the wind blowing. So he flipped on the $2,000 checks. Now he's in favor of the bigger stimulus bill. Um, so if there's enough pressure put on him over the $15 minimum wage, I do think he can, he'll can. he cave on it because he's caved before. So, but, but the most important point is this. This is why your theory of change matters so much. Because what would Obama do in a situation like this? I'd call Joe Manchin into my office, and I'd say, good, sir. Uh, I, think it, I think it'd be nice of you to work with us on this, but if you don't work with us, I understand. you got, you got to look out for your own political career. That's what Obama would do. And then Joe Manchin would say, fuck off, and he wouldn't be for it. Now, there's already some good signs coming out of the Biden administration because now you have Kamala Harris was doing rallies in West Virginia, trying to rally people up. I don't know if it was on the stimulus or if it was on the uh, $2,000 checks, but like they went to his backyard and were like, we're going to put pressure on you this way. So if that's their theory of change, if Biden acts like Lyndon B. Johnson, if Biden acts like FDR, where you apply that political pressure and let him know, hey, I could be your best friend or I could be your worst enemy, you tell me which. If you work with us, my approval rating 60%, son. What's yours? Way lower than that. I'll make sure you get reelected the next time you're up. I'll go there and campaign for you myself in West Virginia. So you want to be my best friend or you want to be my worst enemy? If you're my worst enemy, I'll make sure you lose. So if that's the approach of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, then they're correct. And then he will flip on issues like the $15 minimum wage. But right now, he ain't there yet. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper on this. He's actually not technically wrong. Like, the $15 minimum wage is very different state by state. Like, $15 in Wyoming is not the same thing as $15 in New York New York City, to be specific. Um, It's just not. In Wyoming, $15 is worth way more than in New York City. That's obvious. So, in an ideal world, what you should do is have a minimum wage law that's basically a living wage law where you calculate either by state, but it would be better to do it honestly by county or by voting district. Um, You calculate what a living wage is in that place, and then you make it that in each respective county, whatever it might be, and then you chain it to inflation. So, in rural Wyoming, it might be $9.25 but in New York City, it might be $27. So that's a way to do it that makes more sense economically. So he's not wrong. However, that's not on the table. That's not what's on the table. And if you're telling me it's $15, it's a living wage, $15 an hour, minimum wage, chained to median wage growth, which is what it is, that or nothing, of course I take the $15. No question. No question. So... He's going to have to be moved on this, and he's going to have to accept that, yeah, it might be a little high for West Virginia specifically because of the cost of living, so on and so forth. Um, Now, by the way, if you ask me, hey, how much is this going to affect unemployment? I answer "It it might affect it a little bit. Unemployment might tick up a little bit, but it won't be overwhelming. It won't be a crazy amount. Australia has about a $15, the equivalent of a $15 minimum wage there, and their unemployment rate is the exact same as ours. So to the extent there is an increase in unemployment, it'll be manageable. It'll be negligible. Um, so of course I'd take that 15, and he needs to be pushed on this, okay? And um, fingers crossed that it goes the same way as the checks, and it goes the same way as the size of the, of the stimulus package. Joe Manchin in some ways is the most powerful person in the country right now, and he's the last person that we should play nice with. He should be treated like our enemy, and You'll make him bend to our will. And then if he does, okay. It's a carrots and and sticks approach. If he does, he gets a pat on the back and all's hunky-dory. If he doesn't, metaphorically go nuclear. So let's go, baby. We can't have him stonewall all of the necessary positive change that we need. I hope Biden and I hope the other Democrats continue with that correct theory of change because that's the best chance we have of actually winning. Okay. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, um, we got a lot more to talk about. We're just getting started, baby. Stay right there. back, y'all. Let's keep it going. Um, Let's talk about history. History was made this week, baby. History was made this week. Ladies and gentlemen, history has occurred this week. The state of Oregon that made it. Check it out.
3: And starting today, police over in Oregon can no longer arrest somebody for possession of small amounts of drugs, including heroin, methamphetamine, LSD. Instead, those found in possession would face a $100 fine or a health assessment that could help them to uh, addiction counseling. People of Oregon voted to decriminalize these drugs. It was the first state to do so, and Oregon was also the first state to decriminalize marijuana possession back in 2014.
1: There's a state in the United States of America, that decriminalized all drugs. As they point out, it's baby steps, you know, like if you have over a certain amount, apparently it's an issue. Um, You obviously, this isn't legalization, so you can't sell, but it is a pretty big step to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of all drugs. this is historic and it's really important. And I think this does uh, so much to further the cause of freedom. And this is an area where you have some overlap between the libertarian right and the the progressive left, because usually on, on social issues, we support a hands-off approach where you should be able to do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And this is an instance of that principle, getting closer to that principle. Um, I mean, obviously, the full embodiment of that principle would be legalizing, taxing, and regulating drugs. We're not there yet, but this is a huge first step where you're not going to get locked in a cage for having a small amount of pretty much any substance. So, I mean, this is definitely... Um, cause for celebration. And also, there are real big implications when it comes to criminal justice as well. Because there's way too many people locked up in this country for nonviolent drug offenses. And this is a step in the, in the direction of not locking people up for nonviolent drug offenses anymore. Again, we're not there yet. There's still a lot further to go. But, I mean, you could, you could go a long way state basis, like they did here in Oregon, or you can go a long way if you have a president who's really willing to throw around his or her weight on this issue. You know, I would pardon every single nonviolent drug offender I could as president on day one. I would want a list of all of the nonviolent drug offenders, and I would pardon them immediately. Um, because, again, it's like it's a crime when there's really no crime like it's not our actual crime it's just we've decided to call it a crime and then we punish people for it but it's something that people shouldn't be punished for at all so i think that a lot of the progress that we're going to see is going to come like this where it does happen slowly state by state and i do think it's more likely now that that's also how you would see medicare for all slowly take over the country um, they like Vermont passed it, but the health insurance companies destroyed it. You would need a, a state to pass it and then stick to it and defeat health insurance companies and big pharma and, you know, everybody who's profiting off of it, like a parasite. But like, I think it's most likely Medicare for all comes that way. I think it's most likely legalization of all drugs goes that way in a state by state basis. And also, what does this show you? It shows you that the other idea that I'm obsessed with is um, there's a reason for it. And that idea is direct ballot initiatives. A direct ballot initiative is basically direct democracy where the people of a state vote on specific issues. And there's a lot of states that have it around the country, but we don't have that at the federal level. We don't have that at the national level. Um, I think we should have that every time there's a presidential election. You should vote on the top five political issues of the time. And so we'd be able to vote on legalizing marijuana for the entire country. We'd be able to vote on um, ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'd be able to vote on, you know, whatever it may be, uh, getting money out of politics. Although maybe not because that the Constitution sort of butts up against that. But anyway, um, about 80% of the time when people are voting on these issues, the side that I think is more reasonable wins. It's like in Florida. Florida voted for Donald Trump in the 2020 election, but 60% of them voted to raise the minimum wage, so they raised the state minimum wage. So, And Oregon voted to decriminalize all drugs. So when you give people the option, the decisions they make are way above and beyond, way better, way better than, you know, what corrupt politicians do. And so this, again, is a really big step in, in the right direction. And what do we have? A domino effect. Oregon was the first state in 2014, they said, to legalize recreational marijuana. And then it was slowly a domino effect, and all these states have fallen now. Legal recreational weed at the state level is all over the place. So next, the next domino to fall is going to be legalizing small, or excuse me, decriminalizing small amounts of all drugs um, in various states all across the country. So listen, man, be excited, because these are real concrete wins. And there was a time, I don't know if, you guys know this, there was a time when there wasn't regulation and banning of drugs in this country. There was a time when you can go to the pharmacy and get, like, morphine over the counter. Um, call me crazy, I kind of want those times back. Simply because as a matter of principle, I don't think it's the government business to, te- the government's business to tell you what you can and can't put in your body. I don't think that you should get locked up in a cage if you put the wrong thing into your body. Um, I'm okay with basic regulation, but I'm not okay with like real restrictions on freedom. And we're getting closer to a place where people are free and Oregon is leading the way yet again. Okay. Okay, okay. Next. So, this isn't as good as Oregon, but I will say we're getting there. I will say there's a clear move on a similar issue in D.C.
0: All
1: right, here we go. So, I have some more drug news for you. Uh, Tom Angel Angel of Marijuana Moment, he tracks these sorts of things. He says, breaking, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden, and Senator Cory Booker just announced a plan to release a federal marijuana legalization proposal in the early part of this year. So, I mean, listen, this is wonderful. I have a quote from the senators. As states continue to legalize marijuana, we must also enact measures that will lift up people who were unfairly targeted in the war on drugs. The Senate will make consideration of these reforms a priority. So not only is the idea to legalize it, but it's to tax and regulate it and also basically give first dibs to the communities that were most impacted by this in a negative way, namely communities of color. Um, I'm fascinated to see where this goes because you might be able to get the votes to get it through. You might be able to get the votes to get it through because there are a number of, like, libertarian-ish, libertarian-leaning Republicans who I'm pretty sure are going to sign on. Like Rand Paul, for example, is going to be right there on this and is going to agree. Um, They might have to adjust the language on, you know who gets first dibs, or they might have to regulate it in a way that's different than how they're doing it now, but this is a real possibility. And the other thing is, we know from the polls, this is over a 60% issue. And what the Democrats are starting to do is lean into the fact that their position is supported by more of the American people. In fact, there was a quote from Biden's team um, during this COVID stimulus negotiation. And they said something to the effect of our bill is a bipartisan bill because when the provisions were polled, the overwhelming majority of them had overwhelming support. You know, whether it's the checks or, you know, the money for
3: schools,
1: um, you name the various parts of the legislation. And polling companies gave numbers that were very positive for them. And so now they're saying it doesn't matter if Republican senators are not on board with this. The Republican voters are on board with this. So we'll pass this with 51 votes. And it is bipartisan. We're going to call it bipartisan because the senators are just getting in the way of what their voters want. That's what I love to see. And this right here, this right here, would be a similar dynamic. You know, you could make that argument here because it's a very, very popular thing. And we've been screaming for the longest time. You have to lean into the issues where you're very popular. This is an issue where Democrats are very popular. So lean into it. Take on that fight. Welcome that fight. Do the same with the minimum wage. There's a new poll. 63% of the country want it to be raised to $15 an hour. And if you generically poll just raising the minimum wage and you don't say $15 an hour, some polls have it at 80%. So a majority of independents, and even about half of Republicans. So, listen, lean into this stuff. Lean into it. And um, this would be an amazing moment because, you know, my, my view on it based on all the evidence is that just like this, the states fell one by one to legalize recreational marijuana, and you have now Oregon just fell to decriminalize all drugs, not legalize, but decriminalize all drugs, I really thought that it would go to more states before the federal government picked up on it. But now, with Democratic control, they might actually say, we're not going to wait for any more states to fall. We're going to legalize it uh, through the House and the Senate. The annoying thing, though, is that Joe Biden could do this himself. Joe Biden could do this himself, and he hasn't done it, and I don't think he's going to do it, because he was a drug warrior, remember? Um, So... But now, if the legislation gets to his desk, will he sign it? I think he would have to. I think that the political, the politics of the situation would make it so that he can't take on that fight against his own party and against his own base of voters. So if the bill gets to his desk, I don't think he could veto it. Um, but would he sign an executive order taking marijuana off, of the, off as a Schedule One substance? I don't think so, because he hasn't done it. You know I mean, you would think that even a guy like Joe Biden, who's a drug warrior, would say like i 'll make it a schedule two or something like that, just to throw a little bit of a bone to the to my base, but he hasn't done it, and I don't think he's going to do it so in other words, it's on the House and the Senate to do it and then apply pressure and we'll see man i mean this is this is definitely a good sign, so some of the stuff that are that 's coming out here, I really enjoy it. I really like it, and um obviously, as the twists and turns continue and as um As we learn more, I'll I'll give you more updates on it. But as of right now, this is a big moment. It's a big moment, and it's a good sign. And it might be the near future that we have legal recreational weed in the whole country. Okay. Okay. All right, i got more on Biden's foreign policy. This one is just as bad as the Afghanistan one. So recently we talked about how Joe Biden um, made the wrong decision on Afghanistan. He wants to keep us there even longer. There's no plan. There's no defined goal. It's just, hey, let's stay there over 20 years. Um, So standard neoconservative stuff, following right along with the establishment. Well, now, this is just as bad, if not worse, because he's blowing the easiest foreign policy layup that he had. President Joe Biden's administration has rejected an Iranian offer to coordinate both countries' return to their nuclear deal commitments, arguing that the Islamic Republic must first reinstate the restrictions suspended in response to the U.S. having abandoned the agreement entirely, entirely nearly three years ago. The agreement, officially known as the uh, JCPOA, was reached in 2015 by the U.S. and Iran alongside China, France, Germany, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Former President Donald Trump left the accord in 2018. Facing severe U.S. sanctions, Iran has begun enriching uranium beyond designated caps, something the Biden administration says is blocking a U.S. return to the deal. Quote, If Iran comes back into full compliance with its obligations under the JCPOA, the United States would do the same. The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, told reporters at a press conference Tuesday. Let me explain to you how insane this is and why this is clearly wrong. The United States pulled out of the agreement. So there was an agreement that was negotiated. It was agreed to. All the parties got in. The United States violated the agreement, number one. That's the part that a lot of people don't talk about. But we violated the agreement because we also put sanctions on them when one of the main things we were supposed to do was not put any new sanctions on them. So we violated the agreement, and then we pulled out of the agreement and ripped it up. Now, what are you going to do in that situation if you're Iran? First of all, you're obviously not going to trust the United States of America. That's obvious. But, of course, you're going to turn around and say, okay, we're going to go back to enriching uranium. Because the U.S. pulled out of the deal. They're not holding up their end of the bargain. So, of course, you, it's a tit-for-tat. You say, okay, so we're going to go back to enriching uranium. Now for the United States to say, oh, we'll get back in it, but you need to stop enriching uranium, why the hell should they trust you? Why the hell should they work with you? Why is it incumbent upon the people who didn't break the deal to have the, the gesture, the token gesture of good faith? No, it's incumbent upon the people who broke the deal to, to do a gesture of good faith. So you should get back in the deal, and then they will determine whether or not they want to get back in it. Because, you know, it, it would be totally reasonable if the U.S. got back in it, and then they were like, yeah, we're not going to get back in it. Why? Because why would they trust the U.S.? We've proven to them that an agreement that's made with us is not worth the paper it's written on. So our word means Dickie McGee's now. It means nothing. So there's no, like, grappling and reckoning with normal human nature stuff in D.C. It's just like, no, we're a bully. We say what we want, what we do what we want, and we're going to push people around. So sure, we violated the agreement, we pulled out of the agreement, we ripped it up, but how about you get back in it, and then maybe I'll consider getting back in it after you do. I mean, what a sick, sick joke. Guys, all Biden has, had to do, all he had to do, call up Iran, say, we're going to get back in the agreement, we understand that you're, uh, you know, we did you wrong, we pulled out of the agreement, crazy guy's gone, I'm back in charge. I was one of the people, I was part of the administration that negotiated the agreement with you, so obviously I believe in it in good faith. So we're going to get back in it, and listen, we'll give you six months. You hop back in it within six months, we'll pretend like the past few years never even happened. That's all you had to do. By the way, every American would appreciate that. Why? Because it's moving towards peace. The American people are not going to be, oh my God, you're being a beta cuck to Iran. Does the Ayatollah now control Boise, Idaho? Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to think that. But honestly, this is how their stupid minds work. Because the default position is the neocon position in D.C. The default position is like, we're the tough guy imperialist. We're, We're the strong men. We get to do what we want. And so they always feel like they have to prove their toughness. They always feel like they have to prove that, you know, we're just as strong as the Republicans, bro, us Democrats. And so they act in a way that is boneheaded and dumb and is counterproductive and is going to lead us to a place where there isn't peace. So, now, by the way, the other thing is, this is a part that's not discussed enough, Hassan Rouhani the moderate. There's elections coming up soon in Iran. The moderates are going to get wiped out, and they're going to get the hardliners elected in Iran. Why? Because the hardliners were proven correct. Because the hardliners were like, why would you do a deal with the great Satan, in America? They're just going to stab you in the back. And then the moderates did a deal with the great state in America, and then we stabbed them in the back. So the hardliners are going to be like, told you, not only are we right about this, we're right about everything. Vote for us. So you're going to have the hardliners take over, and then when you have hardliners in there, what happens? Well, we know, because we had our hardliners, Trump and the Republicans, in there recently. What do they do? It's always be more bellicose, be more hawkish, puff your chest out, be a tough guy, you know, say things to, be like, to, to poke the adversary so we're going to be in a horrendous position. Joe Biden had an opportunity here. It was the easiest foreign policy layup of his administration. He could have easily gotten back in it. And then full credit, they would have gotten back in the deal. And then you get full credit, Joe, full credit. Like that's, that alone would have made an argument for the lesser evil voting. Seriously, anybody who voted for Biden, if Biden were to do that, they could turn around and say, I was right about Iran. We're more likely to get peace with Iran. Because one of Trump's worst foreign policy approaches was on Iran. Not only did he rip up, rip up the agreement, he added even more sanctions to the point where it's violating international law, and the International Criminal Court said we have to stop sanctioning the medicine going into that country um, because people are dying, civilians are dying, and you know, our response was to pull out of the International Criminal Court and berate them and say, no, we're going to keep sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. So how many people are dying as a result of the sanctions on Iran? They're similar to the ones we used to have in, on Iraq back in the 90s. A lot of people are dying as a result of this. You had an opportunity to totally reverse course, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. So the worst area so far for Biden has been foreign policy. Staying in Afghanistan and increasing the numbers, ripping up the deal. Um, and now on Iran, blowing the easiest layup ever. I mean, the good news is it, it's unlikely that they're going to be – that they're going to do, like, some sort of ground invasion or some shit, which was a distinct possibility with the Trump administration. But the bad news is now we're in this permanent limbo. Where we're in this permanent standoff. And the other thing is, yes, Israel has tremendous influence over Biden and the U.S. government, and we know Netanyahu despises Iran and would love to see some sort of regime change there. So it, it was so easy. You just get back in the deal and call it a day. and and show some sort of gesture of goodwill, and they'd be like, awesome, we're right back on track. And by the way, the rest of the international community would have appreciated that, too, because Trump was the one who threw a wrench in everybody's plans. By the way, that's how you really change countries. You change them by altering the culture, and you alter the culture by getting a foothold in the country, and you get a foothold in the country by making peace and working in that direction. Instead, we're doing the opposite. So what a huge loss, what a tremendous mistake, and he deserves nothing but scorn for not immediately getting back in that deal. All right, guys, let me take a final break, and then we'll come back. i still got some amazing stuff for you. Um, Biden's team working with the media, working with the media. You're not going to want to miss that. And the Democrats' strategy for the upcoming election. Stay right there. I'm back in this bitch. I am back to blow your mind. I am back. Alright, um, let's talk about how the media is colluding with the Biden administration. Here's a story that's interesting but not exactly surprising. This is from the Daily Beast. They say exclusive, Biden's communication staff has have already Probed reporters to see what questions they plan on asking White House press sec excuse me, White House Press Secretary Jen Saki during briefings, according to three sources and written communications reviewed by the Daily Beast. So, call it what it is, this is collusion with the media. This is not an okay dynamic. The way the media is supposed to work is the media is supposed to be a watchdog of the government and of the powerful for the people. They're supposed to give you information and facts and context, and they're supposed to make sure people in power aren't doing bad things and wrong things. And so it's supposed to be an adversarial relationship when you talk about politicians and the media. And unfortunately, not only is this not adversarial, this is positively chummy, okay? And the fact of the matter is, the Republicans are right about one thing here. They're wrong about something else, which is even more important, but they're right that MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, the Nightly News, like Washington Post oftentimes, New York Times oftentimes, yes, these outlets are pro-Democratic Party, They are pro-corporate Democrats. That's what they are. Um, Now, what they're wrong about is they would say this is the left-wing media, liberal media or whatever. This is not a left-wing media because there's a difference between being ideologically left-wing and being cheerleaders for the corporate Democratic Party. If you're cheerleaders for the corporate Democratic Party, you most certainly are not ideologically left-wing. Far from it. What you are is a propaganda arm for one of the two parties. And the other thing, by the way, is that, of course, Fox News, One America News Network, Newsmax, these are all outlets that are establishment Republican propaganda and pro-Trump propaganda. So it's not like, you know, their hands are clean when they say, you know, Democratic media. No, you're the Republican media. Yes, they are the Democratic media, but you're the Republican media, so you don't have a leg to stand on to make any of these criticisms. But listen, this is evidence to that effect, for sure. Why on earth would the reporters, who are supposed to hold the Biden administration accountable, give them the questions in advance? You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when Hillary Clinton got the questions early from, what was it, Donna Brazile, behind the scenes, like, before the debate, Hillary was getting these questions and for one of the debates with Bernie Sanders. Yes, this is collusion. This is playing favorites. And this is, this is yet another reason why people do not trust the media anymore. They just don't. Why should they? Why should they trust the media when this is how the media acts? And, like, what happened in the Trump era was really annoying because the rest of the media really get, fellated themselves nonstop about how, we're the heroes of journalism and the heroes of the country. We're here to tell the truth, to everybody. Yeah. And because Trump is such an idiot and because Trump is so bad, it's so easy to try to position yourself as some sort of moral arbiters or heroes in response to that. But really, they weren't, because the ways in which they were anti-Trump were usually stupid. It was usually melting down over some tweet or some shit. It was very rarely policy-focused. It was very rarely an intelligent way of resisting. And, like, they got high on their own farts, man. The media got high on their own farts, and they thought they were holier than now. Well, this is the true face of the media. The true face of the media is like, who do I like? Let me do propaganda for them. I like the establishment Democrats. I'm going to do propaganda for them. So there were, you know, they've been colluding behind the scenes. Now, to be fair, there are some people with a conscience in the media who knew this was wrong, and so they're blowing the whistle on it. But this is the culture of mainstream media. Make no mistake about it. This is the culture. And you'll see, in the same way that they hated Trump with a burning passion, you're already seeing the deification of Biden. You're already seeing, like, old Uncle Joe, there he is. What a great guy looking out for the American people. You know, you saw the whole thing with Kamala. How many times has Kamala been on magazine covers? And, you know, they're playing for a team. And yet again, this is one of the main reasons why nobody trusts the media. Because they do feel like their biases come first and the facts come second, if at all. And I think that's true. I think that's true. But again, it leaves a lane wide open for people in independent media and new media to just, like, be a little bit better than these pricks. And everybody's like, oh, my God, new media is amazing. It's like, no, it's not that we're great. It's that they're so bad that we appear amazing, you know? And the other thing is we don't try to hide. They they act like they're objective even though they're incredibly biased. We at least let our biases be known up front. I'll tell you what my ideology is. I'll tell you my preferred candidate. I'm not hiding a goddamn thing. They will hide shit. And pretend like they're being objective when they're anything but that. They're incredibly biased. They're ideological in their own sense. And so, yes, expect, you know, the fluffer press in the Biden years. I would be pleasantly surprised if they held him accountable at all. And the problem is there is this buying into the partisan dynamic, which allows them to be so shitty. Because if you buy into the framework of, like, Democrat-Republican, then, yeah, a lot of people are going to play – defense for the Democrats, because the Democrats are better than the Republicans in terms of policies. If you list all the policies that they've pushed for within the past 10, 20 years, yeah, Democrats are a little bit better than the Republicans. So if you view it as like, I have to play for a team, who am I going to pick? Yeah, they're going to pick the Democrats. But like, that's the problem, is the whole paradigm, the whole mindset is wrong. That's not how you should look at this. You should look at it as objectively as possible, look at it on a case-by-case basis on the issues, and try to tell the American people the truth and try to hold the powerful accountable wherever they may be, if they're Republican, Democrat, or somebody else. So there's going to be a lot more of this, because this is the nature of the press. Now, speak of the devil... Speak of the devil. Here we go. YouTube censorship strikes yet again. um, And striking in all the wrong places, as per usual, not that there is a right place for censorship to strike. Jordan Chatterton says, uh, Hey, YouTube, Team YouTube. He should have tagged YouTube creators, too, um, because they're the ones who are actually a little bit responsive. Now you've taken down... Status coup, and John Farina photos historic footage from Capitol attack claiming it's spam or advances false claims of widespread fraud, errors, or glitches in the 2020 election. So let me explain a little bit about what happened here. This guy, who apparently works for Jordan Charity status coup, he was at the attempted insurrection, the diet coup, as I call it. And he got some amazing footage from this thing. It was up on YouTube. Apparently, it was up for a while, and YouTube just pulled it down. Um, It's absurd to say that this is advancing false claims, because they didn't advance anything. It's just footage of what was going on. So there are no false claims that are being advanced. It's just, it's documenting what happened. And if anything, Jordan Chariton's outlet has done the exact opposite of advancing the false claims, He's a, a strong critic of the nonsense, fraudulent election, rigged election theories. He knows it's bullshit. He's called it out. He's called it out on that channel. So that it's not true, what they're saying here. What they're saying is provably, verifiably, demonstrably false. It's not right. So they pull it down. Here's the cherry on top that really pissed me off. Apparently, CNN and MSNBC and maybe even other outlets have used that same footage from this guy, they've put it up on their respective outlets and their stuff is still up. So the same footage being used by corporate media outlets, that gets to stay. But the footage on an independent media outlet where it originated, that gets pulled down. Do you see the problem now? This is everything about YouTube that's negative in one story. Everything about it that's negative in one story. The censorship, which is crazy. It's also just not targeted and dumb. And also, the screwing of independent media and the propping up of corporate media. I mean, I don't even need to add any commentary to this segment because it's all there right in front of you. They have algorithms that screw the little guy, screw new media, independent media. And they have algorithms that bolster the worst of the worst, that bolster corporate media. By the way, corporate media gets stuff wrong all the time, all the time. And there's no penalties whatsoever. The algorithm doesn't derank them. There's no censorship of them. It's always just we put them in this top echelon. We put them at the top of the hierarchy so they get a pass for everything because they're one of the good guys. They're one of the good outlets doesn't matter how wrong they get stuff. doesn't matter if they got stuff wrong on Syria or Russiagate or you name it. I mean, now the Washington Post just did a thing today where they argued Trump's tax cuts for the rich actually weren't mostly for the rich when they were. It was a bullshit fact check. Is the Washington Post, now obviously, I don't know if they have a YouTube, oh, they do have a YouTube channel, I think, but are they going to get, if they do something on that, are they going to get deranked, or is that going to be censored? When Jake Tapper does a bullshit fact check that's a non-fact check of Medicare for All, is that segment going to get pulled down? It's got a 90% dislike, dislike rate. He lies and says, you know, it doesn't save money when Medicare for All saves $5 trillion over a decade, according to the University of uh, Massachusetts Amherst, a detailed study they did, they get stuff wrong all the time and there are no consequences. Here we have a situation where it's not even that Jordan and status quo are getting anything wrong. They got nothing wrong at all, at all. This is just documenting what happened and they get knocked as if they said something wrong and did something wrong. And also other outlets can use their stuff No problem. Unacceptable, man. Unacceptable. Treat independent media and new media the same in the algorithm as you treat corporate media. Treat us the same. Don't, you know, put us in an unfavored status because we're borderline content where it doesn't spread to as many people. It's not recommended as much. Don't do that. Also, stop with the bullshit censorship. The censorship is bad enough as is, even if it was working as it was supposed to function. But it's not even working the way it's supposed to function. This is exactly what happened with, um, with Adpocalypse. They were like, oh, my God, a Nestle ad or something ran on a Nazi channel. Let's defund all of news and politics. And then, you know, if you were doing a segment criticizing some sort of white supremacist or whatever, they couldn't differentiate between you criticizing a white supremacist and you supporting white supremacy. The whole system's a mess. It's a mess. Treat everybody equally under the algorithm. Treat everybody equally under the algorithm. And there should be only in cases of direct threats of violence and like doxing and harassment, should there be anything pulled down and there should be an open transparent process where it's not just a Silicon Valley oligarch dictator who gets to determine what goes on. We gotta move in the right direction here because this is as bad as it gets. Hurting independent media for no reason corporate media can use the footage of independent media. I mean, censorship gone awry, all of it is unfolding right in front of us. And unfortunately, way too many people are happy to cheer on censorship and deplatforming when the chickens are coming home to roost Okay. All right, let's talk about let's talk about the top issues according to a brand new poll and how this should influence Joe Biden's administration. Okay, so there's a new poll from YouGov. It was done in late January, and, you know, they were basically asking what are the most important political issues to you? So it's asking regular people what should be prioritized in Washington, D.C. The results really are something, so take a look. Healthcare, 23%. Jobs in the economy, 23%. A dead tie for number one. Climate change, 10%. A little surprised that that came in third, or really came in second, really, because there's a tie for one. Um, taxes and government spending, 8%. Education, 7%. Civil rights, 6%. National security, 5%. Abortion, 5%. Immigration, 5%. Criminal justice reform, 3%. Okay, so these are the priorities of the American people. These are the priorities of the American people. Biden just took office. What we should take away from this is the order of the agenda. Because, listen, we're supposed to be a country that's a a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. So if our politicians really are representing us, stuff like this should matter. It should matter in terms of what order you do stuff in. What are your priorities? How do you go about making change? What jumps the line? What has to wait? I see, I see no other way of doing it that's more acceptable than this, because this is the people telling you, here's what I prioritize. So, first and foremost, healthcare. See, this one, it, this does drive me crazy a little bit for this reason. Not because the people, the people are right on that to prioritize, especially in the middle of a pandemic. But what drives me crazy is this is an issue where Joe Biden has already basically said, I'm not in favor of this solution. I'm aggressively not in favor of the solution. I'm so not in favor of the solution that if the solution came across my desk, what would I do? Veto it. Oh, boy. Okay, that's unacceptable. So what should the Democrats do then? I mean, really, what you should have is the left pushing Joe Biden to do Medicare for all, to not take no for an answer. But absent that, they absolutely, positively, 100 percent, without a doubt, he should do an emergency executive order expanding Medicare coverage to everybody in regards to COVID costs, whatever they may be. Because medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in this country, top causes of bankruptcy, and there's a lot, we have a pandemic. So there's a lot of people who are getting a lot of medical bills as a result of this, and Joe Biden has even said anything in regards to COVID should be free. So he absolutely should sign an emergency executive order. He has the authority under Obamacare. There are provisions of Obamacare that allow the government to say, in in case of an emergency, you're covered. So they should expand Medicare um, in order to cover everybody for every bill involving COVID. They should also expand Medicaid and go, you know, make sure that you do it to a reasonable extent where, just like under Obamacare where they did the Medicaid expansion, some red states were hesitant he should do whatever he can to expand that using his executive authority. And then in terms of Congress, Medicare for all is the answer. There's no way around it. But at the very least, you've got to have a full court press for the public option. But yet again, what did Joe Biden do? Joe Biden, within his first few days in office, backed off of any kind of public option, and now he just wants to subsidize COBRA, which is a giant giveaway to the for-profit health insurance companies. So unfortunately, the fact of the matter is, on The most important issue to the American people, not only is Joe Biden not there, he's not in the same zip code, he's not in the same state, he's not in the same country as to the correct position. So that's a huge problem. That's a big issue. And so really, you need relentless left-wing pressure to push him in in the right direction. And um, we should accept no less than the solution in the middle of a pandemic and a depression, which is a Medicare for all system. But then, of course, the, the second thing he should do, it says jobs and economy. What falls under that category? I would say the $2,000 checks falls under that category. He's already backed off that to the $1,400 checks and the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. $2,000 checks should fall under that. And then also a giant infrastructure deal would fall under jobs. So this should be, his top priorities should, are right there. Healthcare really should be Medicare for all, but at the very least a public option and emergency expansion for all COVID related bills. Um, $2,000 checks and a giant infrastructure deal that helps get people back to work, sort of reminiscent of like the New Deal, which we need a new New deal because job losses in this downturn are way worse than even the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. There are four times more job losses now than there was in 2009 and 2010. So it's really insane. But anyway, this is what you need to do. And actually, you could tie together this the jobs and economy thing with the climate change thing, which came in third, because you can do a Green New Deal. So not only are you creating jobs and rebuilding infrastructure, but you're doing it in a way that helps the climate and gets us off of uh, fossil fuels. So listen, that's the approach that I think makes sense. Listen to the American people. Prioritize the right way. And um, I doubt they'll do it in the exact way I laid out, but anything remotely resembling that will be a good start. Okay, now... Final story of the day, everybody. Final story of the day. <laughs> ah! Fuck. I dropped I dropped my LED light controller. Okay, here we go. So House Democrats unveiled the message that they plan to hammer throughout the 2022 election cycle. Take a look at this. This is Allie Mutnick, who's reporting this. She's a Politico reporter. So she says, new, House Dems unveiled the message they plan to hammer throughout the 2022 cycle. The GOP is the party of QAnon. Quote, they can do QAnon or they can do college-educated voters. They cannot do both, the DCCC chair, Sean Patrick Maloney said. Okay, um, this is a terrible message. It's a terrible message. And look at the quote. I mean, that says everything, right? You could do QAnon or you could do college educated. How the fuck did you manage to sound incredibly smug and elitist when crafting a message for the next election? How could you possibly do that? We're college educated, they're stupid. They believe in conspiracies. <laughs> You guys believed in Russiagate. Now, you can make a nuanced argument that maybe that's not as crazy. I'm not going to touch on whether or not that's correct. But you guys did believe in conspiracies. They believe in ones, too, that are insane. Okay. The condescension of a message of, like, you're all QAnon. By the way, it's not even true. What percentage of elected Republicans actually believe in QAnon stuff? Serious question. I... There's no way it's more than, like, 25% of them. No way. They're wrong about all these all the issues, but they're not. QAnon is extreme shit, man. It's no more than 25% that believe in it. Now, if it is 25%, that's still way too high and unacceptable. But that's, that's, the message isn't even true. Because you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and you just extrapolate to all the other Republicans. That's just not accurate. That just makes no sense. So... Of course, what are the Democrats doing here? They're leaning into cultural issues. And when you lean into cultural issues, there's a cultural backlash. And so the Democrats' approach for 2022 is culture war. Let's do more culture war stuff. College educated versus stupid QAnon, idiots on message boards making shit up. QAnon is dumb, QAnon is wrong, QAnon is insane, satanic, pedophile, culture, whatever the fuck, nonsense. Grow up if you believe in that shit. But that should not be your message for a goddamn election. You could, Ryan Grimm pointed this out. You couldn't tie the Re- Republican Party, like Republican politicians, to the Republican president. You think you're going to be able to tie them all to Marjorie Taylor Greene? You're not going to be able to do that. But the most important point is it's a way to pivot off of the substantive issues. It's a way to pivot off of the substantive issues. Listen, they won Georgia... Probably the most important reason, one of the top reasons was $2,000 checks. They won Georgia. It's a red state. Two Democrats won. And Joe Biden won it in the election, which was before the $2,000 check talk, to be fair. But, like, the reason why the senators won is because of the $2,000 checks. That's one of the main reasons. You know, you can just deliver on those checks and then brag about that and say we'll deliver even more if you elect us. Simple, right? That's easy to do. Hey, we're going to get COVID under control, and here's $2,000 checks that's it. People would vote for you in a landslide. People forget. Like, we, everybody thinks, oh, the time we live in now is so partisan. So we're just destined to always have like a 55-45 election from now until the end of time. Nonsense. Because we haven't experienced a president that unequivocally fights for the American people, arguably since FDR. So that's why you have close elections, and that's why it's hyper-partisan. If you have somebody who actually fights for the people, you could easily see an election where you, the winner gets 60%, 65% of the vote. Well, you have to materially fight for people. If you don't materially fight for them, you, you always do half measures on the half measures, and then you turn around and run on cultural shit like QAnon, yeah, then it's going to be a race. But but if you say, we're going to get you the $2,000 checks, we're going to get you more relief as needed, and we're going to control COVID, well, then you'll, you will win in a landslide. It's like It's amazing that it doesn't even occur to them, hey, maybe we materially help people and support people. And do policies that are popular. And then run on that. Doesn't even occur to them. Uh, what cultural bullshit should we pick up? Last time it was, we're not Trump. Now it's, uh, they're all Marjorie Taylor Greene and QAnon is bad. The whole thing of like, they're stupid. That's all fine and dandy when you're like a teenager who's getting high on your own farts and developing your worldview and you want to be smug and condescending and arrogant. But when you're an adult and you're talking about the serious issue of governance, For fuck's sake, be serious. Bring up policy. Fix people's lives. Help fix people's lives. But no. Smug condescension. Literally, quote, they can do QAnon or they can do college-educated voters. (laughs) Uh, We love the smell of our own
0: gas.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Grow up. Grow the fuck up. It's just like, of course they were going to pick a terrible argument, and here we are okay alright baby we are done y'all I love y'all very much I'll talk to everybody soon Noam Chomsky on Crystal Kyle and Friends coming up this week I'm out peace it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win